So tonight we are, um, we are in Revelation 17, and uh, my hope is to get through Revelation 17 and 18, and then the following week we'll do 19 and 20, and then we'll, the following week we'll be finished. So um, I hope you're all doing well. I see we have some uh, truants. Back tables are looking pretty bare tonight. People playing hooky. Yeah. People started to get scared. They were reading and left. Okay. Okay, so um, as we get going tonight, do you have any questions that you wanted to ask about anything we've talked about thus far? Yes, sir. <laughs> See, he missed last week. What, what did we talk about last week, he asks. <laughs> yeah. So I can sum it up in... Uh, Three words, Jesus will return. There we go. <laughs> Any comments or questions? Anybody met one of the witnesses lately? The guy did that time? Joyce? So the comment, if you didn't hear, was Joyce is just saying as she's reading her Bible, having studied Revelation a little bit more, her eyes have been opened to how often the Bible speaks about the second coming of Christ. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Jill? Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to grab my Greek uh, New Testament. I don't know. Okay, do you mean like what does the word mean? Oh, okay, because there's no dragons, you mean? Oh, yeah, it's just, it would be a, the apocalyptic literature does draw upon mythology. So the, 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 the visions that we receive don't necessarily mean that there literally are creatures that look like that. So it does draw upon mythology, and a mythology back to the beginning of time, probably because of originally when the dinosaurs were still walking the earth. Most cultures have believed, most ancient cultures have believed in some sort of dragons or creatures that look like that. So they would just be drawing that imagery out of the mythology of their culture to try to communicate what, what he's seeing. And a dragon, of course, is never considered a nice creature. It's across the board. It's a vicious creature. So he draws that language out of the mythology of his day to try to describe what he's seeing. Now, um, you can come in, Jim. You're w welcome, Jim. Everybody want to say hi, Jim? <laughs> That's what happens when you're late. You get centered out. <laughs> I don't give detentions. I just am publicly embarrass and humiliate. So <laughs> it's not good teaching philosophy, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to start doing that on Sundays. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> oh, 
Okay, someone else had their hand up. Jordan? Oh, okay. <laughs> now, just, it, just a, a, a point that um, uh, I'll make based upon the question you asked is dinosaurs did walk the earth and in some senses still do walk the earth, smaller forms of them. They're just big reptiles, right? So we still have crocodiles and various large lizards. So they're all sort of the same class of animal and they would have... Um, probably a combination of things happened because the flood canopy was brought down or the water canopy was, was brought down um, during the flood, the environment of our planet changed. And so it just wasn't conducive to the larger species of dinosaurs or what we would call reptiles surviving past the flood. So even if there was little brontosauruses on the ark, um, obviously you would, you would be foolish to take a full-size one on. Uh, but if there was uh, <laughs> small ones on the ark, th those species would eventually died out. And the second comment I'll make is, in every classification of animals, there's hundreds and hundreds of varieties that have already gone extinct. So there's lots of mammals that have gone extinct, there's lots of birds that have gone extinct, and there's lots of reptiles that have gone extinct. We're not creating new species, we're losing them. And in the broader category of reptilian life, we obviously have lost some of the largest um, you know, uh, uh, di dinosaurs or reptiles. And so they're, they're not here today, but we don't need to somehow, in order to guard the Bible, we don't have de to deny the reality of dinosaurs. Uh, some people have also suggested, I'm not totally convinced, but some people have also suggested that a couple references in the Old Testament to behemoth or Leviathan may refer to uh, ancient species of dinosaurs. If that's the case, I would probably put more weight on the behemoth description because the behemoth description in uh, the book of Job does describe a creature with a tail like a cedar tree. And oftentimes you have commentators that will say, well, that was an alligator or something like that. Well, it could be, but uh, others will say hippopotamus. Well, I've seen hippopotamus. They don't have, their tails are what, like this long? So clearly it's not a hippopotamus, but the behemoth might, ref might be an ancient word to refer to an, uh, an ancient form of reptile that's no longer in existence. The Leviathan, like the word dragon, is drawn from mythology. So it's not intended to be a literal creature. It's drawn from the mythology of the, the era. And it's not saying that, um, that the Jews believed in mythology, but it's just like us. We, we, we talk about Santa at Christmas time, but we all know he's a myth. Or we talk about the Easter bunny at Easter. <laughs> Who was just surprised? Who just gasped? Josh? Was that Josh? Oh. <laughs> or we talk about the Easter bunny at Easter, and we, we joke about it, but we all know it's a myth. So the Jews, by referring to dragons or Leviathan, that doesn't mean they believed in those things, but they were common notions and culture, and so they would draw from those images to try to describe certain truths, you see? So that's kind of how that works in my view. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Okay. So Revelation 17 and 18 are to be taken as a unit, and most of our time is going to be spent in Revelation 17, because Revelation 18 is more or less a response to the events of Revelation 17. And 
it's a poetic response and it's kind of a repetitive response so there's not a lot of opportunity to have extensive dialogue about what's being said in chapter 18. Nevertheless, we're going to go to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, we uh, encounter a prostitute, or the image of a prostitute, a beast. And uh, certain characteristics of the beast that this prostitute is riding on or sitting on are, need to be sort of unpacked for us to try to understand as best as we can. Uh, who this person or entity is and what the details surrounding her her description are, are, are supposed to mean. So what we'll do is we'll start with just verses 1 to 6. And just to sort of break this down into bite-sized pieces, 1 to 6 is where John sees or envisions the prostitute of the woman who has committed abominations with the beast. Then verses 6 to to 14, uh, the angel comes to John and explains partially what the woman and the beast represent. And then in verses uh, 15 to 18, the downfall of the woman is uh, discussed. And then out of that, uh, in from chapter 17, actually right through to chapter, first part of chapter 19, is, um, is this kind of poetic series of declarations by angelic beings as they respond to the downfall of the, the prostitute or the woman. Okay, so that's sort of the, the flow of it in, in broad, uh, broad form. So we'll start with verses 1 to 6. So then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls had come to me. Now we already talked about the seven bowls, right? And what do they represent? Pardon me? Okay, the plagues that were being poured out. So all part of God's judgment upon the earth. So the seven, one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten thorns. So, uh, ten horns. So just kind of picture that, right? It's just a fascinating image. Obviously not the kind of creature we've seen wandering through the forests of Essex County. (laughs) And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Now, notice in the imagery, you can envision a golden cup, but I'm not even sure what abominations and impurities inside a cup look like. So again, the the language sometimes is difficult to envision because you move from a visual, tangible object to something that is moral in nature, but it's described as being in something that is visible and tangible. And then on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Now notice how long this is. She must have had like a really big forehead. (laughs) Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, And of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints 
the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Again, I'm fairly certain you can't get drunk drinking blood unless you're drinking the blood of someone who is really drunk. So we have interesting mixtures of metaphors and ideas here, but they all are intended to communicate something. They're not necessarily intended to be taken in the strictest, most literal way. And as I've hopefully pointed out time and time again in our study of Revelation, there's always that that challenge. What do I take literally and what do I take more figuratively or wherever I land in between, right? And uh, because one event builds on the previous event, builds on the previous event, so forth and so on, thus we have many different interpretations of the book. And I just, I, I, I try not to be too dogmatic about Revelation because the nature of it is very, well, very hard to understand. It's fluid. It can be taken in a, certainly in a number of ways. But I'll, I'll do my best to try to help you to understand where this is probably um, intended to be uh, taken. So the, the first question is, is the woman in 17.3 who's sitting in a wilderness on a scarlet beast, the same woman that fled into the wilderness in 12.14? So we got a th- thumb back or go back and keep our thumbs there and go back in our Bibles to chapter 12, verse 14. Now, the reason why I want to ask this question is because sometimes the same imagery is reused at different places in the book of Revelation. And one might be tempted to think that it's referring to the same, the same being. But I want you to notice that there is a there also is a woman just to kind of go back here in verse uh, f- fourteen of chapter twelve who's described as also being in a wilderness. It says the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place th- to the place where she was to be nourished for time times and half a time. And then. Um, Further on, verse 17, And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So clearly a different woman, correct? We agree with that? Because the first woman is described as one who is creating righteous offspring, who the dragon hates. And the woman of chapter 17 is described very differently, one who is... Well, she's described as a great prostitute. Sexual immorality and drunkenness and all this kind of nasty stuff is associated with her. So I want to point that out so there's no confusion when you're reading the book of Revelation in the future and you're thinking, well, this is the same woman mentioned in two places. It's two different, it's two different images to refer to different entities. In fact, I'll just tell you straight up, I don't believe this refers to an individual at all. It refers to an entity. Just like the chapter 12 situation refers to an entity, probably not Mary, but either Israel or the church or both. Now, um, there is a beast described in both episodes, and yet the difference between chapter 12 and chapter 17 is that the woman of chapter 12 is being pursued by a red dragon And the woman of chapter 17 is sitting on basically a red beast. 
So again, it can be confusing there when you're, you're thinking of those two images, but the, the, they are a reference to a different person. So what, what then is, or who then is the prostitute? Well, I'm gonna, what we're going to do, because we're dealing with a, quite a lengthy chunk of scripture here, is I'm going to give you some information in advance as we go, but then we're going to try to go back at times and explain why. So most likely, the prostitute is intended as an immediate symbol of Rome. Now here's what makes this complex. Rome is often described as Babylon. And at the same time, this prostitute, I believe, refers to a future kingdom or an eschatological kingdom ultimately ruled by Satan, the dragon. But as his henchman, he has the Antichrist, described as a beast. And the kingdom then that this woman represents in the end times is the Antichrist's kingdom during the tribulation period. So notice, notice how this can get confusing. You have the image of a prostitute, which in the immediate context likely refers to the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire itself is not referred to. The language used of it is Babylon, which had been sacked and ruined centuries earlier, but because it was known for evil, its name is applied to Rome. It's like the new Babylon. So in the immediate context, you have a prostitute, which represents Rome, who is described as Babylon, who is ruled by uh, a, a beast who in the immediate context would have referred to the Roman emperor, but spiritually refers to the Antichrist in the future during a tribulation kingdom that is ruled by a figure not unlike the Roman emperor. So you see how this can kind of get a little complex and confusing? So the best way to try to think about this is to go back time and time again to this idea that I've been emphasizing during our course, and that is this whole idea of double fulfillment. Okay? So double fulfillment is this idea that, and I know you probably can't see this very well in the back, there's, there's two reference. So if this is, I'll just draw a stick figure here and a stick figure here, but I could substitute the stick figure for an entity too, a city, for instance, or a nation, that when you are delivered prophecy marked by the X, the prophecy might dually refer to a, a more immediate figure and an eschatological figure. And these markers are really bad. So in the immediate, so let's say you're... you're John's contemporary, and you're reading this the day after he, the ink's dried. Chances are, in your mind, you're going to be thinking of Nero, you're going to be thinking of uh, Rome, and everything that it represents. But you understand that John's being cautious and careful, and so instead of saying Rome in his book, he says Babylon, and because you're a Jew, you think back to the 
600 years earlier when they were in Babylon and all the nasty stuff they experienced. And you know Babylon no longer exists, but nevertheless, you make the connection. But then 2,000 years later, the modern reader, which, who is us, needs to put, put ourselves both in the mind of the original reader and understand how they would have understood it. But we also need to see the eschatological dimension to this, that there is a a person like Nero, a kingdom like Rome, which was like Babylon in the future, that we need to be prepared for. Okay? So with that in mind then, let's pull apart some of the details of of the text and uh, try to understand what's going on here. So we, we notice that, uh, you'll notice that there's a reference to sexual immorality. Now, it's unlikely that God is solely concerned with the sexual immorality of Rome or the sexual immorality that will exist in the eschatological kingdom of, of, of the devil. But instead of listing every possible sin, sexual immorality and drunkenness are probably meant to be symptomatic of all of them. So he takes two of the biggies, and they are intended to be symptomatic or to capture in summary form all the, the greed and the blasphemy and the, the cheating and the gossip and the slander and the hatred and everything that is part of the kingdom of darkness. And maybe we don't need to make too much of that, but I just want to stress that, you know, in a sense, sexual immorality and drunkenness together capture uh, the whole gamut of uh, pleasure-seeking, self-indulgent sins that human beings participate in. Uh, It is clear, then, that this prostitute is more than a prostitute. Now, notice the, the particular image that the author employs to describe Rome in the immediate and the kingdom of the devil in the future is, is a highly sexual, sexualized uh, object, a prostitute that's very sexual. I mean, a prostitute's job is all about sex. But again, I don't think that God is judging them simply because of their sexual immorality, but because of a whole bunch of things. But he just tends to pick a, an occupation that tends to specialize in sin and uses that as an image to communicate the nature of these two kingdoms. It is clear in verse 1 that the great prostitute is going to be judged. How do we know that? Because it says, come, I will show you the judgment. Now, we haven't read about the judgment yet because we've only read the first six verses. But this prostitute is going to be judged by God. That is clear. And therefore, no matter what happens, God's holiness is going to be lifted high which is a dominant theme in the book of Revelation, that God wins. God is going to be exalted. God will bring glory to himself regardless. As part of this, the kings of the earth are going to participate in some way. I'm going to describe to you in a moment why I think that the, the, um, the seven heads and the ten horns relate to human kingdoms and those that rule them. The kings of the earth evidently are going to participate along with these two kingdoms, Rome and the eschatological kingdom of darkness. 
in creating a, a state of delusion among humanity and encouraging sin, abomination, blasphemy, sexual immorality, and the like against the things of God. And really, it, it is the minority we're going to discover that has true wisdom and true righteousness. So the majority ends up being wrong. The minority ends up being right. This is a theme that we find time and time again in Scripture. That it is the remnant that is righteous and the majority that are unrighteous. Now, you would almost think if you're a capitalist and you're in a democratic society where we believe good decisions are made on a governmental level. The more people that we can get out to vote, the better the decision is going to be. At least that's what we think. So if we get low election turnouts, we sort of bemoan that and we chastise people for that because in our heads, perhaps somewhere in our thinking, we have this idea that if you can get more people in on a, in on a decision, it's going to be a better decision. And, and maybe at times that is true in the, in, the, in the area of government. Other times perhaps it's not so true depending on the issue. But on the level of spirituality and the spiritual kingdom, it's always the majority that's wrong. And it's the remnant that's right. So Israel is just one, just one small kingdom out of many. And the church is just one small group of people out of many. There's always more non-Christians than there are Christians. And then even among those that declare themselves to be Christians, there are those that uh, you know, come to the banquet and are turned away. They're not prepared. They're not ready. And in the church, then there's a there's a there's a remnant of people that are considered the tr- the true and righteous ones. So here we have a greater amount of wisdom that's going to be bestowed upon the remnant than upon the majority. So we have God working with a remnant of people in all dispensations or eras of time. It's always the minority that God centers in on, the remnant. So John then uh, indicates to us that he is, of course, witnessing all this in the form of a vision. He makes that very clear. He, he uses uh, a couple different uh, techniques to sort of drive this home. He paints a picture of an angel who comes to him and invites him to join him in a vision. And then later on, he describes as part of that vision that he's carried away into the wilderness. So again, these, these phrases indicate that this is to be taken as apocalyptic visionary literature and not to be taken as a literal thing that he witnessed standing on the streets of Patmos. This is a vision here. So before we unpack all of the details, let's just make sure we have a good list in our head of what the details are. So here, here are a list of things that we're told about this woman. The first is, I've listed uh, five. She sits on a scarlet beast that is full of blasphemous names. She is heavily adorned with wealth. Now we need to pause there just for a moment and make a comment about that. Why, assuming that necklaces aren't intrinsically evil and earrings don't all belong to the devil, I see some of you wearing them tonight, I'm wearing a gold ring myself. Why would jewelry be described as a significant point or significant description of this individual who clearly is evil and heinous? Why, why make that connection? There's a, probably a couple of reasons. The fact that they're wealthy and the fact that they don't deem themselves necessary to follow God. Okay, so... 
good point. Is being wealthy, does, does being wealthy mean one is excluded from the kingdom of God? No. But what did Jesus say about wealth? Pardon me? Yeah, as a general rule, the wealthier you are, the farther you are from God. As a general rule. We see that in scripture, we see that in history, and we know there's lots of exceptions to the rule, but it just tends to be that wealth has a way of pulling us away from the things of God and we become self-reliant. So in the scriptures, we all know this, wealth is often associated with godlessness. But there's something else I think that's worth uh, thinking about, and it relates to uh, it relates to um, expectations for dress for Christian women, and maybe some of the Christian women in the in the room could comment on this for us to help us move this discussion along. What does the what does the Bible say about women and jewelry? And braided hair, and that sort of thing. Pardon me? What does it say? Okay, so if we go to 1 Peter chapter 3, people often go to uh, Ephesians 5 for discussion about husbands and wives, but Peter actually was interested in this topic. 1 Peter chapter 3. So he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, which is a word for submissive, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So this is whole theology of modeling. If people won't let you speak, you model it. It doesn't mean you just model it. Like lifestyle evangelism doesn't actually win people to Christ. Somebody has to open their mouth and talk about Jesus at some point. But sometimes you don't have the opportunity, so you model it. Then it says, then they will see your respectful and pure conduct. But then it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and then talks about kids, and then it goes to the husbands. So it's clear that New Testament thinking is, I don't think that this is a, 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 a carte blanche um, uh, rule that he's necessarily putting in place. You can, you can never do anything to beautify yourself, but the stress is, where is the stress in your life for your beauty? Like, do you spend more time looking in the mirror or looking into God's word? Do you spend more time seeking out physical jewelry or godly jewelry? And the, most commentators believe that one of the reasons why Peter and Paul stress this kind of teaching is because prostitutes in that day uh, used to decorate themselves quite significantly as they do today, perhaps in a slightly different way, but in order to draw attention. So the whole idea of a richly ornamented woman was associated with, with prostitution in the ancient Near Eastern world. 
And Paul wanted to make sure that the women of the church and Peter wanted to make sure that the women of the church frankly didn't look like prostitutes. So he speaks out against that. So then when we have this prostitute described in Revelation 17, the reason why he mentions jewelry is probably because the, the readers would have understood that a person who's wearing too much jewelry is a prostitute. And that a run-of-the-mill person, Christian or not, would be a little more uh, subdued in terms of how she would dress. So again, the, the jewelry is associated with the prostitution and highlights her trade in this, in this vision, this visionary uh, account. The third thing that we notice about her, as we've, we've mentioned already, is that she's holding a gold cup. Now generally the gold cup would be associated with wine, expensive drink. But in place of wine, there is a mention of drunkenness, but there's instead of wine being in there, there, there are abominations and impurities described. Now this, these, are, these are broad terms referring to a whole bunch of different, uh, different kinds of sin. The fourth point is she has words written on her head that exalt the, the Babylonian, read between the lines, Roman Empire. And the fifth thing that we learn about her is what? She's a murderess. That she has been involved in the martyrdom of the saints. So these descriptions then paint a vivid picture of both the reality of life in the first century for believing people and the eschatological reality of what life will be like in the kingdom of the Antichrist and the difficulties that believers will experience there as well as sort of the, 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 the prevalence of evil that will be part of that particular kingdom. In our culture as Christians, we often say, you know, things are getting worse, aren't they? I mean, we see the rise of homosexuality, we have abortion legalized, we have the rise of secularism, and on and on and on, more and more people getting divorced, and so forth and so on. But in actual fact, uh, this has been going on since the beginning of time. It's not true that we live in the worst time ever. And the, 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 the situation in the first century was, was, was bad. I mean, it was very difficult to be a Christian, far more difficult than it is today for any of us. It was very difficult. Not only did you have a lack of resources and a lack of critical mass, but the entire kingdom that you lived in as a citizen was opposed to your faith. And this very vivid description of evil in the first century is going to be mirrored again in the uh, eschatological reality. By the way, one of the reasons I think why we think of our own culture as getting worse and worse is because we enjoyed the influence of the Reformation and the Puritans for the past three or 400 years, and that has now finally waned. So we have this little upswing where the, the Protestant Reformation happened and there was sort of a return to righteousness and a lot of nations that recognized the supremacy of God in the West, and now we're sort of back to where we were. But you know, jump back beyond, be, beyond the Reformation or even during this last four or 500 years, go to Africa or South America or some of these places that really didn't have a lot of Christian influence and things were bad there and always have been. So 
I think that's one of the reasons why we see it getting worse because in our lifetimes in the last few centuries, you know, our, our culture, at least in the West, has been more Christian than not. And clearly now it is not, again. Nevertheless, then, we have uh, a description, uh, an explanation, I should say, of the beast and the woman in verses uh, 6 to 14. So the angel then comes to John and he explains who the beast is and who the woman is. But here's what he does. He uses more symbolic language to, to describe them. So it's like, well, thank you. Couldn't you be more, you know, literal? But no, he uses metaphorical language to describe his metaphors. Here's what he says. Well, John's comment is first, the end of verse 6. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. And then the angel says to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Okay, great. Who is she? Here's what he says. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now, can we just pause there for a second? Wouldn't you expect them to say was, is, and is to come? Like past, present, and future? But he says, was and is not and is to come. So there's like kind of two pasts and one future. So not a lot about the present. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Again, he uses the, the metaphor of a mountain to describe the heads, but clearly it's still a metaphor. Unless the woman is really big. Like, how could she possibly sit on seven mountains all at once? They are also, they are also, well, what is they? The seven heads of the seven mountains are also seven kings. Well, why didn't you just say that in the first place? Five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast who was and is not, it is an eighth. So we had seven, now we have eight. But it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings. Okay, now I'm getting confused because you said it's seven kings, but the seven is actually eight. And now you're using... You want to interpret the horns as 10 more kings. We've got a lot of kings here. Who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Well, that's a pretty brief kingship, isn't it? These are of one mind that they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Well, at least that information is helpful because whoever these kings are, whatever these kings represent, they're going to somehow come under the kingship of the beast. They will make war on the lamb, so that would be Christ, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. So those are obviously believers. So that, that's helpful. So here's the sequence, verse 9. He interprets a metaphor with a metaphor with a metaphor. Seven heads equals seven mountains equals seven kings, 
And among those five kings, think five plus one plus one. And then the seventh king is only going to be around for a brief period of time. And the beast, who is described as was, is not, yet to come, is connected to the seventh king and is going to be somehow destroyed. Um, so then in verse 12, we have ten horns thrown. And again, we're just kind of reviewing this to kind of get it in our heads. We have ten horns. So they are described as, as kings as well that will turn their power over to the beast. Now, if you go back to the chart that I handed out last week, one, two, three, four, fifth from bottom, we have the great prostitute. And I've described her, suggested that in the immediate, that refers to Rome and in the future, the Antichrist kingdom. Babylon, same thing, Rome, Antichrist kingdom. But what about the beast again? So we need to go back up our, our chart. And you remember there was actually two beasts. There's the beast from the sea in chapter 13. And there's another that's described as a beast and a, a false lamb in chapter 13. Now, the second figure is probably the person we would know as the false prophet who's a liar, falsifies, pretends he's the Messiah. So then later on in the book of Revelation, when it talks about beast, sometimes there can be confusion. Well, what beast is it talking about? Well, most people would agree that it's the, the beast from the sea, depending on how you understand, regardless of how you understand that, that figure or what you understand that figure to refer to, even though there's two beasts represented or two beasts mentioned, from there forward, whenever you see the word beast, it refers to the first one. And in my view, then, uh, I would understand this beast that is referred to in this passage as the Antichrist or the one that's referred to as the man of lawlessness. And what we discover is that these kings that probably represent not individual kings, but given the, the round symbolic number 10, probably collectively refer to uh, a series of nations who will uh, subjugate themselves to the powers of the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness in order to try to overcome the lamb in yet one more failed attempt to gain power. And I would suggest that the reference to one hour is likely not to be taken literally, but is meant to refer to the brevity of their quest. And if this is during the tribulation period, I mean, it will be a very brief uprising against the true and living God. So I want to I talk a little bit more about the details here, but I think there's a question or a comment. So. Oh, I see. I'll, I'll get you one. So let's talk a little bit more about the specifics. And do you remember at the beginning of the class, I said there's always the challenge of what's literal, what's figurative? Well, I'm going to go with literal on part of this and figurative on another part of this, but I, I could be wrong. So how do we interpret the specifics? Uh, and again, lots of different views. We don't have time to unpack every view in detail and all the reasons behind these views. 
but the we'll start with the seven uh, kingdoms. I'm going to go with literal on this. And the reason why I'm going to go with literal on this is because I can find in human history seven candidates, so to speak, that fit this timeline well. Now, before I introduce the seven candidates to you, there's many other people that have tried to come up with seven literal candidates. So coming up till the time that John, John was writing, there were... I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of Roman rulers back into you know, a couple hundred years before Christ when the Roman Empire first started to rise. And there's been lots of attempts done to say, well, we should start dating it from this person. So what a lot of people have done is they've, they've counted back seven, but then there's a whole question, well, do we count back seven from Nero? Do we count back seven from his successor? Do we, do we count the seven most vicious rulers of Rome or... Do we count some of the, the underlords, maybe some of the guys that were ruling the, the provinces under the Roman emperor, and, and on and on and on and on. Lots of, you can read commentaries on this. There's all kinds of options that have been presented to us as to how we might understand uh, or how we might find seven candidates among the Romans that would represent these seven kings who... Just as in the first century, there's sort of seven guys leading up, but then Nier was sort of the worst of the worst of the worst. In the eschatological kingdom, perhaps he's referred to seven nations. I don't know, Canada, the U.S., Belgium, Denmark, you know, whatever, pick your list, who somehow subjugate themselves to the Antichrist during the period of the tribulation. So lots and lots and lots of options uh, along those lines. And same with the description of the ten kings. There's been lots of people that have tried to do lots of work trying to figure out who these individuals might have been in the first century or leading up to the first century. But here, here's what I would suggest, that uh, there's also sort of a, an, an immediate and eschatological dimension to, to this prophecy. Uh, the seven heads on this beast are figurative. The seven mountains may refer to seven mountains or mountain areas that actually formed uh, part of the city of Rome. So there were seven dominant mountains in Rome. And it may be that moving us from more metaphorical Two more literal, John is taking us from the, the extreme and the outrageous seven-headed monster to, yes, another metaphor, but one that's a little more concrete, the seven mountains of Rome, but they clearly are not what he ultimately has in mind, to seven kings who perhaps, in fact, represent seven kingdoms, one of which was Rome. Now, which one was Rome? Well, notice he says, five have fallen. So what we need to do is find five historical kingdoms that were vehemently opposed to the things of God that first century Christians would have been familiar with. The sixth, then, would be Rome itself, represented by the, the seven mountains. And the, the seventh is the eschatological kingdom. So that's my view. So here... Here are some candidates that I think uh, we should consider. 
So what, what nation was, uh, uh, if you've been in here on Sunday morning, you should know this, but what nation was vehemently opposed to the, to the people of God when they were sort of being birthed in their cradle as a nation? Egypt. Okay, so Egypt was a world power way back in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th millennia B.C., I mean, they were, they were probably, the pyramids probably were built a thousand years before Abraham walked the earth or thereabouts. Very shortly after the, uh, maybe not that far back, but very shortly after the flood, the pyramids would have gone up. So Egypt was a nation that, you know, godly people didn't come from. They, they persecuted the, uh, the people of God. They had world dominance. In northern, northern Israel today, there are ruins from uh, Egyptian conquests. So they had gone as far north as northern Israel and had a measure of world dominance. Well, as they sort of began to um, not fade, but become less powerful, what, what, what nation sort of be- became the greatest threat to the ancient people of God after Egypt? Not yet. You got a couple, couple millennia. Okay, Assyria. Okay, so Assyria is next on the list. And the Assyrian kingdom lasted from approximately 2500 BC to 605 BC. So quite a long time. That that's quite successful, especially in a you know, volatile, warrior-like culture, for them to last, I mean, almost 2,000 years is actually pretty impressive. Now, just as an aside, it was the northern kingdoms of Israel, the 10 in the north, that were taken into Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. That's, if you look at Israel, there'd been a divide after Solomon because he basically had a twit for a son who didn't know how to rule. There had been a divide. Two tribes in the south, Judah and uh, Benjamin, they became known as the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom were the, the other ten descendants, the, 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 the descendants of the other ten sons of, of Jacob. And for several generations, they were segregated and at war with each other. Well, it was the Assyrians that... Uh, sacked Samaria, was known as Samaria in the north, and took the, the ten nations into captivity in, in and around 722. Well, in 612, the Assyrians tried to pick a fight with the Babylonians and lost. So in 612, Assyria falls to Babylon. So that's about seven years or so before its ultimate demise. So Babylon becomes the dominant nation and their capital city is is uh is babylonia or or babylon and um they are the ones that so they're becoming powerful before this but they basically take these guys out in 612 they're the ones that took the southern kingdoms into captivity when 586 so 586 is when the southern 
there was actually a series of invasions, but we just date it to about 586 is when Babylon sacked Jerusalem and dragged off Ezekiel and Daniel and those guys. So they become then the, the, the dominant world ruler during, for instance, Daniel's prophecy. So think of Daniel as living during, during the Babylonian Empire. What's the next kingdom on the list? Okay, Persia. Or sometimes it's called the Medes and the per- Persians. These were two uh, nations that sort of came together, two people groups that came together. The Med- this, this word, just interestingly, is the word from which Magi come from. So when it talks about Magi coming from the east to visit Jesus, uh, there's two possibilities to that. They were actually Medes in their ethnicity, or because the Medes did a lot of astrology, the, the word Magi took on both an ethnic and a figurative meaning. So sometimes it referred literally to people that were of this ethnicity, and other times it was used metaphorically of magicians, people who practice forms of magic. So we have the Medes and the Persians. Now, the date there is um, 539. So in 539, Darius, the king of the Medes and the Persians, takes out Babylon. Uh, Sorry, Cyrus takes out... uh, Cyrus is the king at the time. He's mentioned in Daniel... He, he takes out Babylon, and they become the, uh, the governing, uh, sort of the, the governors of the civilized world, the superpower of the day. And now, Jack, what's the next kingdom? Okay, you had to wait a while. But now we have Greece. And who's the guy that sort of catapults Greece forward to fame and fortune and prosperity? Alexander the Great, who dies actually, what, in his late 30s, I think? So he doesn't live very long. But he's a warrior and crosses a lot of territory. So, so Greece um, defeats Persia in 331. So Greece defeats Persia in 331. And whenever you hear the word Hellenistic or Hellenize, that has nothing to do with heaven and hell. It has to do with the Greek culture. So the Greeks did a great job in Hellenizing or Greekifying the world. And even when Rome was ruling, they had been Hellenized to the point that the, uh, the dominant language that was still being used in, in the, uh, the Mediterranean basin was, was Greek. So they were very much influenced by Greek culture. So uh, Greece takes off, of course, after Alexander the Great. They're not so unified. It breaks up into a bunch of little fiefdoms. And there's no real date for this, but Rome starts to rise in the 2nd and the 3rd century BC. So by the time we, we come into the New Testament, Rome's doing really well. It continues to do well for several centuries. And now Rome is sort of the governing world leader. So here's my suggestion. Here's the first five being referred to that were, that have fallen. So this is five. This is one. And then in the future, the eschatological future, we have the one that will be, 
which again takes us back to this immediate and future, or now but not yet tension that we encounter time and time again in the book of Revelation. So it seems to me that because we have these five very well-known super superpowers, sort of that chronology is pretty much uncontested, that in the text, when he talks about the seven who oppose the things of God, verse 10, five have fallen, Egyptian, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. One is, he's writing in the first century, so Rome, and the other is yet to come. Well, after Rome, there's not really there's not really any one kingdom that we could point to that sort of exemplifies over and above any other the kingdom of darkness, but even the yet to come, which is futuristic, I'm going to throw it into the tribulation. And this is a kingdom that's only going to last for a very little while. I mean, at the most, three and a half years. That's a very little while compared to these dates we've looked at. So the eschatological kingdom of the devil is probably what... Uh, we have in mind here. Um, now, let me make a few more comments about this, and then we'll we'll take a break. Some people have suggested that, uh, so people that don't agree with the futuristic view that this is all first century stuff. It's fulfilled in the past. It's all historical. There's a few things that I think that particular view would would need to uh, to answer or contend with, if. If what John is referring to is strictly Rome, and all seven heads refer to the seven mountains of Rome, and therefore the seven kings that are mentioned are simply symbolic of the power of Rome and only Rome, and that's it. So all, all three of the sevens, the seven heads, the seven mountains, the seven kings, just refer to Rome and only Rome, which would be the his, historical view the view that this is all just first century stuff, there's nothing eschatological about it, then one would wonder, well, what, what role then does the woman have sitting on seven different mountains? Why, why sort of break out the mountains? Why break out the kings? In, in what way, if this is just referring to one kingdom, why would it say she's sitting on, on all seven mountains? What would be the significance of that detail? Or if it's as simple as that, then in verse 9, why would it require wisdom if the interpretation was so obvious? So if the interpretation is just, well, it's Rome, and it's all, all, all three of the sevens referred to here refer to Rome, then why, why would it refer to uh, the idea of needing wisdom to sort of uh, figure this out? Um, and the third point is, Again, why use the language of seven kings? Why not continue to use the language of a prostitute and make her Nero and Nero only? Why, why have the prostitute, which probably does represent in the first century Nero or the Roman emperor, and then doubly seven kings that also refer to the same individual? So why give us so many metaphors to refer to the same individual. So this is why I think that it's probably more sensible to separate the role of the, that the prostitute plays in the vision from the role that the seven kings uh, play in the vision. So again, using my now but not yet or immediate versus future paradigm, I'm going to go with 
The prostitute in the immediate represents uh, Rome, which is referred to as Babylon, which represents everything that is opposed to the things of God. And in the eschatological future refers possibly to the Antichrist or the one known as the man of lawlessness. And the seven kings refer to seven kingdoms, five of which are historical, one of which is present, and one of which is cast into the distant future and to be understood in a futuristic or uh, eschatological way. Okay? So, what do you think? Is it reasonable and plausible to unpack it that way? We could be wrong. Maybe we're all heretics. But I think that's probably how we're supposed to uh, understand the text. So we'll take a break, and um, then we'll come back and work at this a little bit more. (laughs) All right, so uh, back into the text. So now we have the question of the ten kings, and here's where I I feel uh, like I'm sort of switching things up too much, but I'm going to go with figurative on the ten kings because there's been lots of attempts made to pinpoint this ten specific rulers. So there's apparently there was ten provinces or at least ten provinces in Rome at the time, and some people say, well, this refers to the ten lieutenants of the main Roman uh, emperor or the ten Apparently, there were 10 provincial rulers that were ruling over Palestine. I didn't do the research on this, but I was reading this in a commentary. Um, others have suggested, suggested in the eschatological kingdom that there will specifically be and only be 10 nations who form a confederacy uh, against God and the things of God and subjugate themselves to the one that we know as the Antichrist. I'm just going to suggest to you that both in the first century and in the future, we don't necessarily need to identify 10 to still benefit from the text, that uh, it could refer just to nations in general, be it 9 or 15, who uh, band together and form some sort of a confederacy against the things of God to support the beast during the tribulation period. And these um, nations, whoever they are, they might be nations that haven't even been created yet because I know this will bother some of you because we all want Jesus to return now, but he might not be coming back for several thousand years yet. I mean, how do we know? We might, we might have another 20,000 years ahead of us or we might have two weeks. We have no idea. And... Uh, every generation of Christians has been fairly convinced it's going to happen in their lifetime or in the lifetime of their kids or grandkids, and we just don't know that. So we don't know the time nor the hour, nor do we know, I'll just add, the millennia within which Christ is going to return. We might just be at the very beginning of uh, the Gentile ingathering. Who knows, right? Nevertheless, these uh, nations these 10 kings, which presumably refer to 10 nations or national entities or a large number of national entities, number 10 being symbolic, perhaps here, may be along the lines of the uh, the principalities of uh, Ephesians chapter 6. So if you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, 
Remember Paul is writing to the Ephesian church about spiritual warfare? And he talks about, there's, there's six pieces of armor that he identifies. We need to be careful in not over-interpreting those pieces of armor. A lot of people like to do that because it makes for fun preaching. You know that the breastplate of righteousness, if you want to protect your heart, you have to be righteous. Or if you want to protect your head, you've got to think salvation. I, I wrote uh, basically my undergraduate Greek paper on this passage, and I'm convinced that that's not a legitimate way to read the text that there's no direct correlation between the specific use of the armor and the moral attribute that's connected to it because elsewhere in scripture the specific piece of armor and the moral attribute are flipped in fact throughout scripture nevertheless the things that we are to nor do i think that there's uh they're intended to be you know some of them are intended to be defensive and some of them are intended to be offensive He's just using, he's connecting them to armor in general, that these are things that do both protect and allow us to offend the kingdom of darkness. And in this broader discussion about spiritual warfare and putting on the whole armor of God, uh, who is it that we are fighting against? If you look at verse 12, it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, all of that language, I believe, refers to spiritual warfare in the higher spiritual life of the believer. So that as you walk in faith, the, the devil takes notice of you, his demons take notice of you, and they attack you in your areas of vulnerability. And each of these quote-unquote spiritual pieces of armor helps you to defend yourself against attack but also to make a dent in the kingdom of darkness so it's very much of a spiritual conversation however the spiritual is not totally divorced from the natural and the spiritual authorities and spiritual powers yes it's true we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but that doesn't mean flesh and blood aren't used by the devil as part of his scheme to do battle with the people of God. So when, when one looks at the language of rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, it's not just beings flying around in the spirit world. Those beings can infest and inhabit governors and prime ministers and mayors and kings and queens and yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. So when we do battle then against these things, we may in fact be doing battle against flesh and blood, but it's not the flesh and blood that's motivating, it's the spiritual. So in Revelation, when, when they talk about uh, nations banding together, I mean, maybe these are literal kingdoms, but these literal kingdoms are infested with the things of the devil and sort of are the the equivalent of the principalities and the powers that the earlier Christians in the first century also struggled and wrestled against. Another option is that they refer very specifically to the kings that will advance from the east against Israel. So if you recall last week, we talked about the Euphrates River drying up. And I think there's probably two things that are significant about that. Babylon 
relied upon the Euph Euphrates River on one side to defend itself against attack because it's kind of hard to sneak across a raging river and attack a city. It's quite obvious. So that was a natural geographical wall. But being that Babylon was already diminished come the first century, uh, the Euphrates River doesn't become all that important anymore because there's nothing really there to attack. But it might be nevertheless that the writer John, through this vision, is playing off the arrogance and the pride of the ancient Babylonian kingdom by saying, oh, I know they've sort of fallen down, but now the wall of water that protect them historically has been brought low. But the more, the more important um, takeaway is that the removal of the uh, the, the, the Euphrates River allowed the, the enemies from the east to advance upon Jerusalem because I mean they didn't have to worry about people from the west so much unless they came in boats because that's the Mediterranean. But from the east is where a lot of their enemies, these people, would, would advance from. So these, if these uh, ten kings refer to either ten kings or ten, a ten-nation confederacy or just some sort of a large confederacy, it could, they could come from anywhere. They could come from North America, uh, or they could come specifically from the East. But at the end of the day, one thing is very clear and undebatable is whoever these individuals or entities are, they are opposed to whom? Jesus. And they will try to attack the lamb at all costs. So that brings us to the end of the, sort of that second section. So we're introduced to the prostitute and the beast, then John describes for us what they mean, so to speak. But we still have to do a lot of work to try to really understand what they mean. And now we have this interesting event in uh, verses uh, 15 to, to, to 18, which almost takes us by surprise. It seems out of, out of place. And the angel then said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So again, there's that global dimension. So in some way, shape, or form, the prostitute is over or ruling over more than one nation. So that can be Rome first century because Rome is a kind of a compilation of a whole bunch of kingdoms. And it can be the future eschatological kingdom where there's going to be some sort of global power ruling over things. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, that's where you should say, well, I wasn't really expecting that. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Okay, now just a second. I thought the prostitute was on their side. Yeah. So why would they be rising up against their own player? Then it goes on to say, they will make her desolate and naked. So that would be taking the symbol of a um, prostitute, and basically it's saying they, they rape her and molest her and strip her nude. It's basically how that's to be understood. So it's carrying forward the imagery of the, met the prostitute, and how would one abuse a prostitute? Well, that's how they would do it, and these people abuse this prostitute. And then it says they devour her flesh and burn her up in fire. So very, very vulgar imagery. But here's then the reason for that. Here's what helps us to understand why that is there. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose, 
by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So what's going on here? The kingdom of Satan is pictured in the end times as turning in upon itself. It self implodes. And in some senses, this happened to Rome very progress, not not quickly, very progressively over several centuries. So the, early, the immediate reference, Rome, that actually did happen to them, but it didn't happen overnight. But over the next several centuries, because of godlessness, the Roman Empire turned in on itself and fell apart. So it's no longer even in existence today. And in the same way, the future despotic, demonic, satanic kingdom of darkness as we get closer and closer to God's final judgment, turns in on itself. Even Satan and the prostitute, the Antichrist, can't get along. So just as Rome, which is called the great city in verse 18, falls apart, so the eschatological kingdom ultimately will fall apart. And this is where those that ha whose blood has been shed by the prostitute find a measure of hope. That as we move through the book, we, we see all this evil and all this, this, this grotesque, satanic work being done. But then there's these, these reminders again and again that God ultimately prevails. And this, by the way, just in a very practical way, is a great reminder to us that whether it's nations or churches or families or whatever organizations there are, when, when organizations uh, or groups of people are not founded on the principles of God's law, they don't ultimately last. They may last a few centuries, a few weeks, a few years, whatever. But without God's law, there's eventually anarchy. Because when you remove God, what, what becomes your ethic for making decisions, self, or money, or power, or ego, or whatever it might be, all the sins? And those things never make for good company, and they don't make for good relationships. So whether it's marriages, or churches or religious organizations or schools or on and on and on and on and on. As soon as God is removed, they fall apart. So we can look at some examples of this. Most, most of the, uh, the older universities in the world are former Christian institutions. And now they peddle uh, much darkness into the minds and hearts of students. So even in our, our own province, McMaster was a Baptist college. Um, UWO was an Anglican college. Windsor was a Catholic college. Uh, Waterloo uh, or Wilfrid Laurie was a Lutheran college. And so forth and so on. You know, Yale, Harvard, those big schools and states, Presbyterian, Methodist, they were all Christian colleges. But over time, they lost their Christianity. They sold out because they wanted to get accreditation or get more students or, you know, acquire more land or whatever. And now they're the exact opposite. Not that every course and every teacher is bad, but there's a lot of humanism and secularism and atheistic thought that comes out of our universities today. And then we have great churches. Like the, the, the entity that we know as the Roman Catholic Church is, uh, you know, if you want to sort of chart it back 
generationally is just a continuation, as are we, of ancient Christians from the first century on. And slowly they stray, they stray, they stray so far off course that groups break out, remnants break out that say, no, we, we got to get back on track. And then that group gets off track. And then another remnant breaks out and says, no, we got to get back on track. And that's why we have multiple denominational strands in our culture today. So, you know, it's, it's a good uh, reminder to us that when one founds their life or their organization or their educational system or their government upon godlessness, it won't last. So I'll, I'll just say this, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but the further even our own country moves from being governed by the principles of God, not for the sake of being religious, but because God is our creator, he knows best. The further our country drifts from the things of God, the closer it moves towards its ultimate demise. Canada will not last as an organization infinitely because it's drifting from its, not that it, ne ne not that it necessarily ever had strong moorings in Christianity, but it's moving progressively into an anti-God state. And that won't last. History's shown that time and time and time again. See? The chances of this church lasting for centuries is slim to none. We'd like to think that it would, but at some point, there's probably going to be heresy that enters into this church, either now or in 400 years, and it'll peter out, and other churches have to be started. That's the, that's the history of the earth, right? And this kingdom is no different. It will turn in on itself, and its selfishness will bring its ultimate demise. Look at Egypt. I mean, the Egyptians of Egypt aren't even the Egyptians of ancient times. It's a totally different people group there now. Yeah, most of the ancient Egyptians are dead and gone. And it's a mixture of Arabs and so forth now that are considered Egyptians. The Assyrians, who have, they're, they're, there's very few left in northern Iraq. You know, the Babylonians, that's not even really a people group anymore. They've morphed into the Assyrians. The, the Persians, you know, the, these, are, these are nations that have fallen in upon themselves as they've drifted from their moral bearings in, in God's word. So then we have uh, an extended dialogue, poem, I should say, in verse 18 about um, how the people of God should respond to this good news that evil will not triumph. So verse 18, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. Now this should remind us of what passage? Twenty. Chapter 20 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. God is always pictured as up. When he sends his heavenly messengers, they come down. That's deliberate. Now, we could have a conversation with the fact that in a spiritual world, there's no up and down. But he's using language of accommodation. He's accommodating our understanding of things. And when we think of God, we think of him spatially as up, even though technically he's not. He's everywhere. But the language here accommodates our human understanding. He comes down from heaven. He has great authority granted to him by God, presumably. And the earth was made bright with his glory. Now, this is not pushing for angel worship, but this angel is representing the things of God as God's ministering servant. So God, rather than the church, gets glory for the demise of the city the, what's known as the great city or the prostitute or Rome or Babylon or the kingdom of darkness. These are all words referring to the same 
entity or entities. And clearly then chapters 17 and 18 go hand in hand because the fallen city of Babylon that is discussed in this angel's through this angel's words is is obviously the prostitute, obviously Rome. So he calls out in a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So he goes back and adopts the language of chapter 17. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. In order to help us to understand the demise of Babylon, he uses language that would have struck fear into a person living in that culture. So he's talking about the the Jewish people, for instance, understood two things. That the blessings of God were largely interpreted in light of earthly security. So you've got to think differently when you're thinking Old Testament than New. There are differences. In the New Testament, in our church, we talk a lot about heaven, we talk a lot about eternal life, and we, we, we focus on the future. Now, it's not that the ancient Old Covenant people didn't understand the reality of heaven, but they didn't understand it as well as we did. That's a fact. Their understanding of God's blessing was more grounded in the realities of the moment. So if, if they had a city with tall walls that was secure generation after generation, if the women were having lots of babies, if the crops came up every spring, if they had wine for the wine press, these were signs and symbols of God's blessings. And it was natural for them to think that because God had told them that, that if you obey me, here's what you're going to get. Security from war, fertility, and lots of food. So the idea of a city being broken down that was symbolic of God's blessings departing. And so all through the Old Testament, when the cities of Jerusalem come down or you know, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and, and wipes them out and then uh, the, the Persian king sends them back, it was very critical for Nehemiah and Ezra to get the walls rebuilt because this is, this is their mindset. So the, the ultimate fear for them is not so much hell, but the ultimate fear is lack of security in the here and now. Broken down walls. The idea of their, their, their lineage being wiped out, their names being wiped off the face of the earth, not having any sons, not having any children, their descendants being no more. This was fearful stuff. Then that mindset was not limited to the Jews. All the Semitic peoples, all the peoples of Mesopotamia thought that way as best as we can tell and, and lived life with that worldview. Again, it's a different worldview than we have, but that was their worldview. So into that worldview then, God speaks in, the, in the, the first century context. And when he talks about Babylon being fallen, he brings in a spiritual element. It'll be a place for demons and spirits. But he also talks about every unclean bird, unclean and detestable beast. What's that saying? It's a couple things. That their cities are going to be abandoned. There's going to be no people there. What's going to be living in the cities instead? The kind of things that Jewish people wouldn't eat. Vultures, that would be unclean birds. Falcons, the kind of birds that feed on carrion or, or dead animals. Uh, what would be some unclean beasts? Well, rabbits or uh, pigs, wild hogs. Those, those kinds of animals they weren't allowed to eat. So this, this referred to ultimate desolation. And God speaks into the lives of the people in that first century context and says, basically, if you oppose me, 
here's what's going to happen to you. All of your fears are going to be realized. And in this situation, Babylon's fears are going to be realized. The walls are broken down. There's going to be no children running in the streets. Your descendants are wiped out. And foul creatures are going to invade your territory. And again then, uh, broadly speaking of sin, references to immorality and riches and wine, drunkenness. So just as God then calls his ancient people from literal Babylon to return to the promised land, here he calls his people in the first century and in the eschatological future to separate themselves from Babylon, to come out from it. In 586, they went there against their will. But I think his message to the first century Christian is, why are you living there again willfully? And the message then to the church today is let's not live in Babylon. Let's not live in our spiritual Babylon. Let's be different. Let's be a remnant. Let's not be marked by these kinds of, these kinds of things, fixation on wealth, sexual immorality, and um, drunkenness. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. So there you have it. There's the, the preachable take home lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. That's, that's quite an image, isn't it? The people built the Tower of Babylon, Babel to try to get to heaven. And it was, it was a ridiculous. God looks down and sees it. You know, the Genesis, he looks down. So he gets his mouth, what's that little piddly thing down there? <laughs> they think this is so big, but in God's eyes, it's so small. And... So there's, there's this idea of earth being so small and heaven being so far, but then when it comes to sin, all of a sudden it's a huge pile up to the heavens, or up to heaven, I should say. And so it, it, it exaggerates in some ways using this visual imagery of a pile of sin, how, how wicked the world has become. And God remembered her iniquities, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. So it's like you want to drink wine, let me give you two big glasses of judgment or two big cups full of judgment. So the, in, in 17, the sins of the kingdom of darkness are described using very blunt very grotesque language, but and, and in, in some senses enlarged language, if I may. Almost exaggerated language. And that's probably deliberate because now in verse 18, God's judgment is even larger, even more exaggerated. It's double the sin. And there's probably this idea here of... Um, not necessarily a, a one for one, but sort of a what you what you uh, sow was what you reap kind of a theology. You do this, you're gonna uh, uh, reap even worse. So there's 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 pride, there's um, power, there's wealth, and God mirrors that with a greater degree of humiliation, a greater degree of destruction, and uh, so forth. So ju- judgment correlates with sin. God doesn't. You sin this much, God doesn't give you this much judgment. 
Or if you sin this much, he doesn't give you this much judgment. You sin this much, he gives you this much judgment kind of a thing. So look out. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in, lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning shall never, I shall never see. So there's that self-reliance. No one will ever take my husband, my power, my security from me. For this re- reasons, her plague will come in, plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So here we have God's judgment meted out on a whole list of sins. Um, I mean, we, we don't need to go through them all, but there's, there's you know, a number of sins that, that, that are uh, uh, alluded to here. And the people of God are called to separate themselves from these things. One of the things we need to consider, by the way, in this current life within which we live is what does it mean for us to separate ourselves from sin? You ever thought about that? Is it ideological? Is it uh, physical? Are there degrees of separation? This is something that I can guarantee you there's about 25 different views on this in this room. What does it mean to separate ourselves from sin? Is it merely, so when we think about the sin of our world, are we simply called to separate ourselves from it on an ideological level? Or are there times when we literally should physically remove ourselves from sin? So what if you're a controlled gambler? <laughs> what if you're a disciplined gambler? <laughs> you only take cash. <laughs> okay, well let's let's park on this one. I would I would bet that uh, pardon the pun that. Uh, <laughs> That wasn't intentional. (laughs) I would bet, I would wager that there are a lot of different views represented in this room today as to our relationship to the casino. So there are some of you that wouldn't have a problem being employed there. There are some of you that wouldn't have a problem gambling there as long as it's within limits. There are some of you that wouldn't have a problem going for a meal there if there's deals on or going to a show there. There are some of you that your conscience is such that you you wouldn't you just would never go there. And there are others of you that would be very angry for anybody that would do any of the above. I, I know that. I know in this church there's differences of opinion. I've never been to the casino. You'll never catch me there. That's my conscience. Because there's nothing redemptive there. I'm not going to go there and eat meals. I'm not going to go for cheap concerts. I, I will not enter the casino. Unless someone calls me in to preach. 
right? Then I might. But at this point in my life, I've never been to the casino. I've, I've never even been in its parking lot. I have no interest in it because there's nothing redemptive about that to me. But others of you, and I don't, I don't judge you because I still pastor you and I know you hold different views. Others of you, there's people in our church that work there. There's people that go there for concerts or have said, you know, they got great meals. I just won't go to the casino. So when you think about that and, and you take that to another level, there's certain things, uh, there's people in this room that will not send their kids out for Halloween. I send my kids out for Halloween and I tax my kids on the return. Okay? <laughs> I have no problem with that. It's called, it's called the daddy tax, okay? So first dibs, 10% off the top. It's kind of their tithe. Go with the whole tithe and that works for me. Because in my mind, I don't associate Halloween with wickedness. It's a bunch of kids running around the neighborhood in costumes. But there's other people, I don't know, Aaron, that's, you know, I can't believe you'd say that. You don't know the history of it. I actually do know the history of it. It's, it's the evening before All Saints Day. Um, when it comes to Christmas, some of you will put up a Christmas tree, give out gifts, and tell your kids that Santa Claus is real. I'll put up a tree, give out gifts, and take credit for all the gifts I bought myself. <laughs> um, but I was raised in a home where we didn't celebrate Christmas, we never got gifts, and I wasn't even aware that Christmas existed until I was about 11. Well, about 9. Don't say, ah. So, <laughs> oh, poor guy. <laughs> I survived, okay? <laughs> so I, I do respect people that don't want to celebrate Christmas because it is, a, it is heavily materialized or materialistic, I should say, and secularized. Um, there's multiple views in this room on drinking, multiple views. Uh, there's multiple views in this room on the degree to which you would be friends with an unbeliever. My own personal view is I will never have an unbeliever as a close friend because in my understanding, a friendship is always a two-way relationship. And what fellowship do I have with darkness? But I will have lots and lots of people in my circles of influence who are unbelievers to whom I can influence and be kind and generous and all that kind of thing. But my best friend is never going to be worshiping a different God than me. So you have, but then there's people, well, yeah, but that's my thing. I mean, I've had people take it to the extreme. Um, you know, they, they work in very seedy establishments and try to argue that, you know, there's, they're there for evangelistic purposes. Now, I know that's never true. It's always an excuse, but it's, you know, kind of works for them. But the whole idea of separation, to what degree do we separate ourselves from evil? Well, I, I believe there, at all times, we separate ourselves ideologically from evil. But I personally think there are also times when I should separate myself physically from evil. There are certain places I should never go because there's nothing redemptive about it. And if the argument is put forth, well, how are we going to evangelize these people? Well, wait, out the wait outside the door. You know, wait from, they've got to go home sometime. You know, and, and evangelize them in a context when they may actually have open ears and a willing heart. So lots of different perspectives. We also have uh, historically a, th a theological perspective on degrees of separation. So in, there are books written on this. I think I probably have a couple in my library where uh, churches have put together you know, the first degree of separation, second degree of separation, third degree of separation. So on a Sunday morning, what minimally do we have to have in common for warm fellowship? 
that circle, whatever that circle is, is then expanded when we say, well, minimally then what do we have in common to consider another person a genuine Christian? And the circle then becomes larger. So there are certain things that other Christians might believe that I still think puts them within the confines of biblical Christianity, but I'd probably have a little bit of a difficult time worshiping with them on Sundays. And then there's another circle where the question then, when does a person actually become a heretic at which point I should break fellowship? So even within the church, there's different views of the appropriateness of fellowship, right down to a very strict view where there's, there's church groups where you can only associate with people in your specific denomination. And you're not allowed to even step like one step outside the door because everyone else is fundamentally wrong. So that's the, I grew up in a church like that where, where when we were kids, if I drove by this church in 1982, I would have assumed that you're all going to hell. Uh, that, that's what I was, I was never told that explicitly, but, but there's a lot of ways I was told that in other ways. Because I thought Baptists were all heretics, right? And definitely the Presbyterians, Joyce. Um, uh, <laughs> and and ev even people that were, um, you know, in like sister groups. So when I was r very young, we went to a, a group known as the Gospel Hall. And, you know, I didn't know till about 20 years later there was another Gospel Hall less than three kilometers away. They were on the hill, we were in the valley. You can imagine the jokes. <laughs> and when I met some of those folks years later, I, I asked what the difference was. And for the life of me, I, I still don't know what the difference was. But um, somebody, somebody broke fellowship years, ago, years earlier based upon you know, the, maybe the shade of scarlet that the beast was colored with. Something ridiculous like that, right? And it literally broke to total fellowship. There was, no, there was no fellowship there at all, right? So just think about that. When God calls us out of sin... You know, we've kind of gone off on a bit of a bunny trail here. But what does that actually mean? What, what does it mean? To what degree do we associate with sin or sinners? You know, do, do we associate with born-again Christians who say, I'm born again and I am going to be an adulterer? You know, do we associate with people that say, I'm a Christian, but they're liars? I mean, you've got to think about these things. And your conscience has to guide you, but before your conscience guides anything, you actually have to learn to think. Because your conscience doesn't guide you devoid from truth. Your conscience has to be informed by truth. And when your, con when your conscience has been informed by truth, then your conscience has something to work with. And a lot of Christians say, well, it's just my conscience, but what have you actually thought through? Well, they don't really, they've never read any of this stuff. They've never read Matthew 18. They've never read... 2 Corinthians 5. They've never read any of the passages about biblical separation, so they have no opinion on it. Right? Um, so these are some things for you to think about. Comments or questions? We could talk about this. We could, we could do a whole course on this one. But What do you think? So how did he conduct himself? What would be some things about Christ that would inform our... Pardon me? 
So then when, you th when, when we talk about that, then we got to ask ourselves, what did those relationships actually look like? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the thing about Jesus, too, is there's not really a church yet. So there's, there's, there's minimal information we can get from Jesus about how he associates with true believers who then have fallen away because his ministry on earth was so short. There wasn't really that much of an opportunity for there to be an established church presence and then for people to fall away and for Jesus to work through all those details. I mean, I mean, Judas might be the closest example, but it seems quite clear that Judas was not a true convert because he was indwelt by Satan. You know, and there was never any repentance. But I think the heart of Jesus certainly needs to be considered. But beyond that, the epistles, the, the example of the way Paul and Peter and John and them dealt with straying believers or the degree to which they associated with, with, uh, with unbelievers is informative. So Jesus would associate with prostitutes and Jesus would associate with tax collectors and Jesus would associate with you know, liars and thieves and everybody else, but only for a very brief window of time. And if there was no repentance, he'd move on. He didn't accommodate and he never facilitated sin. So what he didn't do is he didn't set up soup kitchens and invite the same people month after month after month who are living in blatant sin to come back for a meal over and over and over and over again and keep feeding them and accommodating and feeding them and accommodating. But that's Christian mission today. And it's not biblical. Christian mission is not, you're a broken person, come to our church for the next 20 years and take from the church but there's no expectation of change. That's not Christian mission. But we've reduced it down to that, thinking that if we just keep handing out bowls of soup, that somehow people might change, but if they don't, oh, well, we're still doing what Jesus, that's not what Jesus did. The early church didn't do that, you know. Yeah, so... Mm-hmm. Well, Paul's letters to first or Paul's letters to Timothy are very informative. The food distribution in the early church was for Christians. Uh, I mean, Paul even talks talks to Timothy about the fact that it is the Christian's responsibility first and foremost to feed the poor in its own house. That's Christian mission. Most of our food, most of our charity work should take place within the believing community. Again, this is, this is very different than what many of us have been taught because we haven't thought through it. But the early church fed the poor and fed the widow and took care of the orphan. But there's, we, we, we need to clarify that. It was the Christian poor, the Christian orphan, and the Christian widow first. And it was, and then of course, because, I mean, it almost sounds like a gimmick. And maybe in the human realm, one can say in some ways it, it is, even though gimmick is a bad word. But because the church did that to its own, the unbelievers were attracted to it. So the missional model of the early church is not all go and tell, it's also come and see. It's not just go out into the highways and byways. It's come and see how Christians live and how they treat each other, and you'll benefit not only spiritually, but also physically. 
So I believe in the early church, there was a lot of attraction. The widows and the orphans, the people that were broken down, saw the church loving on itself. And people came in and they saw that and they were converted and at the same time their needs were met. But not just indiscriminately start firing our, 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 our mission dollars at people who are not interested in change and are not even, they're not even yet aware of any need for change and there's nothing in them that they're aware of is broken and you know, on and on and on and on and on. You know, I, I tweeted something out today and I'll tell you what the tweet was. My tweet was that um, charity without Christ is like a Band-Aid without antiseptic. The idea of just throwing dollars and time and talents at people and saying, well, that's Christian charity. No, no, without Christ somewhere in that mix, things being done in the name of Christ, that's like a, a, a festering wound. You just slap a Band-Aid on it. You don't deal with the root, the root problem. And so... Uh, Obviously, there are, there are times when the Church of Jesus Christ can rightly partner with secular institutions who are meeting the most base needs of people, you know, in war-torn areas or somebody whose village has been wiped out by a tsunami. But I think the lion's share of the Church's charitable work should be um, to people who are willing to listen to the message that we're preaching. And there, it may be that we have to give a little bit before they're willing to listen. But if we're just given, given, given month after month, year after year, and there's no real gospel there, we're, we're wasting the kingdom's dollars. Right. So that's my little, uh, my little sermon for you tonight. <laughs> Hopefully you're a little worked up about it. Go have a conversation. A lot of the stuff that happens around us, we take it for granted. Uh, I do security, and uh, last year I was in the parking lot at Metro or some of that, and uh, there for four hours because students were blocking the Metro entrance, and uh, and the older people who were trying to go shopping in there, some of that, they wouldn't let them in until the young people would extend their hands. Oh, like people looking for money? Yeah. Oh, I see. Sorting money. Yeah. And then in the parking lot, there was a whole bunch of young people or some of that, supposedly out of four or whatever, some of that, checking doors and things like that to see if they're open. Yeah. Or yeah. you would have a $200 jacket or some of that and ask you for money. Yeah. And then going down and get a sandwich and wrap the box, you know? Well, we, we do have a lot of takers. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's, sure. it's in front of you. We do have a lot of takers, and we need to be cautious about that. I mean, again, I, I mean, I was at, a, I, previous to this, I pastored at a church in the downtown area, and we would have people come in and ask, cause I'll t I could tell you lots of stories, we'd have people come in and ask for money. Well, we don't give out money. What do you really need? Well, I need milk for my kid. Or, okay, well, we'll get you some. So we'd pack up a bag and a box and give them stuff, and they'd go and throw it in the parking lot and run off. Because they didn't want to say no to us there, but that's never, literally, they just go and fire the whole box of groceries all over the parking lot and run off. Or, uh, I thought this was kind of humorous, but probably isn't. Um, every year we'd give out turkeys. So you'd just call. These people never came to church. But, you know, the tradition was we just gave out turkeys to anybody who called. So this lady called and she said, I'd like to put my name in for my yearly turkey. 
So the secretary wrote her name down a phone number and hangs up the phone, ring, 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 same person. I'd like to call for my yearly turkey. You just called us. Oh, I'm sorry. They're just calling through the list. So there's, there's a lot of takers out there, and we do have to be wise and careful because we have created, even on a government, and I could talk about this a little bit, we've created on a governmental level uh, a social security system that shamefully, for some, facilitates sin and robs from those who are legitimately in need of it. There's lots of people that are, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's a great idea. There's lots of people out there, some young mom, three or four kids, and her husband decides to go shack up with the neighbor. Well, this woman needs help. And it's great if as a society we can help people like that. But people who live off the system generation after generation and expect it, it blows my mind, they expect it. You're the, I mean, if you're making over $25,000 a year, you're rich and you owe them something. And we've created this system and nobody wants to say it because it's not politically correct and you don't win elections. Uh, but we've created this system where uh, you got hardworking people that are going to work paying thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year in taxes, a large portion of it of which is going to facilitate nothing shy of sin. And of course, there's all kinds of other ramifications of that, the system's collapsing and whatnot. But anyway, um, we'll see you next week. Thanks for coming. <laughs>